Well, good morning. Good morning. It's uh, so great to see y'all and for us to be together and uh, to worship together. It is, uh, it's, it's just really good. Uh, it is wonderful. Um, and uh, I, I will say it's, it is a little strange to look out and uh, only see some eyes. And, uh, you know, preaching in the 830 service, um, looking out, you know, I, I told Tobias in between that um, it's hard to tell what people are thinking when you can't see their mouths, right? Uh, so I just have to assume, like, you're loving every single thing I'm saying. Uh, and Kat actually joked earlier this week that maybe uh, people should come with, like, emoji signs, and they could lift them up, you know, like the heart, you know, hugging the heart, and uh, I don't, you know, whatever. But um, if we weren't Presbyterians, I'd just tell you all to yell out to me and stuff, but, but I'll, I'll just look at your eyes, and we'll, we'll figure this out. But, um, but seriously, uh, it is wonderful to see your faces and to hear your voices and for us to uh, gather around God's word together. This is, uh, this is what we were intended to do. Um, I'm thankful for the technology that we've had, that we've been able to still offer worship, and, and even now with some of the restrictions we're still seeking to abide by, I know it's not ideal, but, but the Lord is gracious. He's been good and merciful. He's been kind to his people, and uh, his kindness has shown even now as we get to be together. So, um, so I'm thankful to be with you. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 123, Psalm 123. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, Psalm 123. So Psalm 123 is a song of ascent. It's a song of ascent. So uh, what that means is that there are 15 psalms in the Psalter that are classified as songs of ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. And what we believe about these particular psalms is that they were primarily used by God's people as they were traveling to Jerusalem for worship. So the people would be all over Israel, they'd be scattered throughout the nation, and they'd congregate together to worship the Lord. They would come together and they would sing and they would worship and offer sacrifice and, and they would have to pilgrim, they would pilgrimage, I guess, their way to uh, Jerusalem. And as they were going up to Jerusalem, these are the songs that would be on their lips. They would sing these songs, and they would read them, and they would pray them to one another as a way of reminding one another of what it is that they were about to do. They were going and singing with anticipation, with hope, with the promise of God's mercy. And that's what this psalm is encouraging us to do. This psalm is reminding us, even as we read it and sing it and pray over it, it's inviting us to turn our eyes to the Lord that as we come to worship, we come and we fixate our eyes on the one who has called us, and as we do so, we find his mercy. And so let's go ahead and read Psalm 123, a song of ascent. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. 
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in your word we find your truth, your grace, your mercy, and your kindness. And we ask that we would experience that again this morning, that we would know more of your kindness, more of your grace, more of your mercy, and that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to please you, because, Lord, you are our God. You are our king, and you are the one who reigns over us. And so be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Ken and I have a very good friend of ours whose name is Rachel. Uh, Rachel doesn't live here in Roanoke. She lives in St. Louis. She's a very good friend, her and her husband. Um, I actually presided over their, their wedding, and so we've uh, become very good friends and have kept up. And from time to time, Rachel and her family will come and visit us. And a year ago was one of those times. They came and they, they spent a few days with us, her and her husband, her children, and they, they spent a few days in our home. And I remember one afternoon we were outside playing in my backyard. We were kicking the soccer ball around with my kids. And, and, and Rachel, who was a competitive gymnast as a child, so elementary school, middle school years, she was a competitive gymnast. So she, she traveled around to competitions. She went to the different meets. She did all the backflips and twirls and all those sorts of things that gymnasts do. And so I'm talking to her as we're playing soccer, and I said, so, so Rachel, I know you used to be able to do backflips. You used to be able to do spins and handsprings and all these sorts of things, but, but can you now? <laughs> you know, can you still do a back handspring? Can you, can you still do a cartwheel? <laughs> and she, she laughed at me. She's like, a Penny, you don't have to be a gymnast to do a cartwheel, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I, I can't do a cartwheel, so, <laughs> uh, so I was impressed. So anyway, she laughed and said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could do those. And my kids hear this, and so the next question is, well, do it. <laughs> Let's see you do it, right? And her husband was wise. Maybe don't do this. You know, I don't want to go to the emergency room just in case. And so, so she goes over to our trampoline, and she starts hopping and jumping. And sure enough, before long, she's like flipping in the air and turning and spinning and doing all these sorts of things. It's amazing. And she pulls my kids onto the trampoline and, and are teaching them. And like, this is how you jump. This is how you get higher. And this is what you do with your head. You tuck it and you move your hands and all these sorts of things. She's teaching them how to do these flips, which is a good thing she was teaching them because if I was teaching them, we'd all land on our heads <laughs> and I'd get all dizzy. And if I did end up laying on my feet, well, I would end up on my backside, <laughs> honestly. And so, uh, so she's the one teaching my kids this. But, but as she's teaching them, there was something she told them that I had never heard before. She said that what's important when you're coming out of your flip, you start to feel dizzy, you feel, start to feel disoriented, that when you come out of your flip in order to land and stick the landing, you have to find a spot where you're going to land as soon as possible. So as you're coming out of your flip, you have to look for the spot in which you're going to land, and you need to focus on that spot so that when you hit, it's amazing, because if you focus on that spot, when you land, the dizziness and the disorientation and the, the unsteadiness of your legs actually find firm ground. That by finding that spot, it, it negates the, dis, the disorientedness and the dizzy. It's pretty cool, isn't it? That if you focus your eyes on that one spot, the dizziness will, will be counteracted. Now, I imagine that some of y'all, probably most of y'all, aren't doing flips in your backyard. Actually, I know some of you are, because I've seen on Facebook. I, I am looking back there at yards. Um, but... Um, <laughs> 
but, uh, but the majority of us are not doing backflips and front flips and back handsprings in our yards. And so we don't have to worry about the dizziness and the disorientation. But, but the truth is, is that when we encounter struggle, when we feel stress and worry and concern, well, we do feel disoriented, don't we? And we do feel dizzy, and it feels as though the ground in which we are walking is not sure, that it's unstable. And so in those times, what do you look to? Where do you fix your eyes? When we encounter these times, where do you look? I mean, in these past weeks of quarantine and of separation, in the last few weeks where where news of of death has filled our news feeds and injustice and the abuse of power and rights, when these sorts of things we're confronted with and we feel dizzy and disoriented and it feels like the ground beneath us is not stable, where do we look? When we raise our eyes, what do we look to? Maybe it's our family and our friends. Maybe it's the authorities. I think for most of us, it's to ourselves. We look inward. Right? I'll, I'll provide myself with the firm footing. Maybe we just actually look our heads down. We bow our heads and pretend like we're not that dizzy at all. Well, where does the psalmist turn? Because he's experiencing burden. Did you hear it in verses 3 and 4? We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now, we're not actually sure who the proud or the at-ease are. Some have speculated that perhaps these are people from within the people of God, within Israel. So they are at ease because they are of great wealth or of great power, of great influence. And they're using their wealth and power and influence to bring harm upon those who are weak. They're bringing scorn and contempt. And, And we actually know that this happened at times in Israel. You can just read the prophets. And see how they spoke against the abuse of the weak and the marginalized by people within Israel. So some think that maybe it's coming from within. Others think that's coming from without. That as the people are going up to Jerusalem, as they're going to the place of worship, they would have walked through towns and villages and through areas of the land that would have been dangerous, would have been difficult for them. And so there is some that speculate that there were people, Gentiles, nations, who are actually bringing abuse and scorn and condemnation upon the people as they go to worship. So maybe it was coming from without. We're not actually sure if this is coming from without or within because the psalmist doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that wherever it is coming from, he is burdened. He's weighed down. He's disoriented and dizzy. We hear it, right? We have had more than enough. I think as we say that phrase, we have had more than enough, we should actually say it with a sigh. We've had more than enough. I mean, you can hear the fatigue in those words, can't you? The exhaustion. The psalmist is tired of the contempt and he's tired of the scorn. And we know that feeling, don't we? I mean, there are things in our life where we could easily say, we have had more than enough. And in his fatigue, in this unstable situation, the psalmist looks to a single spot. The psalmist looks to counteract the dizzy and this disorientation 
In the unstable ground, he looks to a single spot. The psalmist looks to the Lord. That's where he turns. That's where he fixes his gaze. We hear it in verse 1. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in heaven. And in verse 2, our eyes look to the Lord our God. You see, in times of trouble, the psalmist fixes his eyes on the Lord. And this point is driven home with this metaphor that he employs in verse 2. Metaphor about the servant and the maidservant. He says, Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eye of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Now, some think that this metaphor is pointing to the the servant or the maidservant looking to their master or their maidservant, looking to the one who is a superior so that they would get instruction. And that's within the realm of possibility. You can see how that would work out. If you're a servant, you go to your master and you expect your master to tell you what you're supposed to do or where you're supposed to go, right? What his needs are next. But I actually don't think that that's the, the point of this metaphor, because if you notice, the psalmist doesn't just say we look to, the, to our master or our mistress kind of in a generic sort of a way. Instead, he's very specific, right? The, the, the master, or excuse me, the servant looks to the master's hand. Now, why to his hand? Well, the hand is a symbol of action. The hand is a symbol of action, You see, the servant and the maidservant are looking to their master and to their mistress because they're not looking to be informed of what they are to do, but the servant is looking to the master for him to do, for him to act on the servant's behalf. He's looking to his hand. You see, the servant isn't looking to act on his own. He's not looking for himself to do something or to go somewhere or to act on his own behalf. He's looking to his master to act. And that's what the psalm is encouraging us to do. You see, we fix our eyes on the Lord, looking for the Lord to act on our behalf. But if we're going to look to him to act, it means we're going to have to wait for him. And we hear that waiting. In verse 2, our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Did you hear that? Our eyes look to the Lord our God until, until, until you show us mercy. We wait until you act on our behalf. I actually love this image because the psalmist knows exactly what he needs. He knows exactly what he needs. He knows exactly that what he is in need of is mercy and he is going to wait for it until the Lord gives it. He doesn't try to manipulate the Lord. He doesn't let his impatience drive him to taking things into his own hands. He doesn't act on his own. He's going to wait. As we look to the Lord, we wait for the Lord. And in waiting for the Lord, we are trusting the Lord. We're trusting him. To wait implies that we believe that he will act. Maybe not in our timing. Maybe not in ways that we would desire, but that he will. You see, to wait means taking our situation, whatever it might be, and actually taking our very souls and putting them in the hands of the Lord. And y'all, let's just be honest, that can be hard. 
right? We gather for worship. We sing praise to our Lord. We worship him and we celebrate him for good reason. And Lord, why haven't you acted yet? Why haven't you moved? Why am I still waiting, right? That can be hard, can't it? I mean, think about that phrase that we've sometimes used, like in our own homes, or maybe, uh, maybe that we've used in our places of work. If you want something done right, you better do it yourself. Yeah. If you want it done right, you know, if, if you want that carpet uh, vacuumed properly, that long cut, you better do it yourself. If you want that project done exactly the way you want it, exactly in the time that you want it, you better do it yourself, right? And what does that phrase imply? It implies that I don't need to trust other people. In fact, I shouldn't trust other people. I should trust myself. Because I'll do it right. And I'll do it on time. And let, let's just, you know, before people start coming up with all these excuses for why that phrase might actually sometimes work, there are times at work when the person isn't very trustworthy and they've shown themselves. I know that. But the problem is, is we take that mentality that I can only trust myself and we apply it to our relationship with the Lord. And we start to wonder, I, I've waited too long. And maybe my waiting has been in vain. And we start to wonder, will the Lord ever really act? Will he ever really move? Maybe I shouldn't wait anymore. But y'all, God's people have been waiting throughout history. This is what we do. We wait for the Lord. I mean, think about it. Hundreds of years, the people were enslaved in Egypt. Hundreds of years. And what did they do? They cried out to him again and again and again until he heard, until he responded, until he acted. They waited. And, and certainly in between the Old Testament and the New, when it seemed like God's word had gone silent and the people were living in the dark, they waited again. And they waited and they looked for the Lord to return, for him to send his Messiah. They waited and they waited. This is what God's people do. We wait. And we wait because we know that God isn't like man. God isn't like you and he isn't like me. He is trustworthy all the time. And he will absolutely act. Again, it may not be when we want him to. It may not be in ways that we even asked him to, but he will act for the sake of his own name and for the good of his people. And so we wait. We look to him in our waiting, and we look to him as we trust. And when we look to him, what we find is his mercy. Three times in four verses, this is a very short psalm, three times in four verses the psalmist invokes God's mercy. Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. So the psalmist knows what he needs. He needs relief from those who are showing him contempt and scorn. And so he looks to the Lord. And he looks to the Lord because he understands something about the Lord and about those who are showing him contempt. He understands that those who are showing him content, contempt and scorn, they are no match for the Lord. Right? Did you hear that language? You are the one enthroned in heaven. So what does that mean? God's not just the king over Israel. He's not just the king when this psalm was written. He's not just the king right now. He is the king for all time. 
And he is the king over Israel, and he's the king over Europe, and he's the king over Christ the King, Presbyterian Church. He is the king for all time. He is enthroned in heaven. He invokes that. That's what the psalmist turns to. The one enthroned in heaven, and he is the one enthroned in heaven, means that he is powerful, that the nations are no match for him. I mean, do you remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 2? God is the one who sits in the heavens, and what does he do? (laughs) He laughs. (laughs) He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, right? He holds in derision those who oppose him and his ways because he is the one of greatest power and of greatest authority. And what is amazing is that the Lord uses that power to show mercy, to show mercy. I think sometimes we, we conceive of mercy as being a demonstration of weakness, but it's not. The one who is most powerful, who has most authority, is the most merciful. This, this dichotomy, this, this, this tension of God's power and his mercy, it's, it's shown throughout Scripture. I mean, think again of Exodus when the people were crying out from their hundreds of years of slavery and God came and he delivered them, what did he do? He defeated the most powerful nation in the world at the time, the Egyptians. And he, he laid waste to their gods by bringing plagues upon them and their gods could do nothing against them. And he led his people through the sea and into the wilderness and to the mountain. And even on the mountaintop, he showed his power because the earth quaked and in the sky it was filled with lightning and thunder. His power was on display. And from his mountaintop, we hear this beautiful word, this beautiful proclamation in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord. He's powerful. He's mighty. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God of mercy and grace. You see, that's who he is. He is the God who uses his power to show compassion, who uses his authority to show steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the God of mercy. And that's why Israel turned their gaze to him. That's why the psalmist fixes his eyes upon him and showed his mercy to look for God's mercy again and again and again. And y'all, his mercy isn't just for the Old Testament. It's not just for the people of God then. It's not just for Israel. It is for us. Because when we look to him and find mercy, when we look to him like the maidservant and the servant, we look to his hands, and what do we see? We see the lengths to which he would bring us mercy. Because as we look to his hands, what we see are the bleeding wounds of Christ. That's what we see. I mean, do you remember Thomas and Jesus, their interaction? After Jesus was resurrected three days after he was crucified, he appeared to his disciples. And you remember Thomas wasn't there, and so Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, I will never believe. And so Jesus appeared again. And this time Thomas was there, and what did he do? He showed him his hands. He stretched forth his hands, and he said, Thomas, look, look upon my wounds. And he invited Thomas, stretch forth your hands and touch the holes where the nails were. 
He stood before him and he showed Thomas the wounds that Jesus received on Calvary, the wounds that bring mercy. He held out his hands and what Thomas saw and what we see are the hands that bring mercy. And y'all, that's why we turn our eyes to him. That's why we fix our gaze upon him. Because he is the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness because he is the one who is gracious and full of mercy and we need look no further than the cross to see his mercy, to see his power, to see his care and his compassion. And so let us look to him today in our worship and in our weariness. Let us fix our eyes upon him tomorrow in our sadness and in our celebration. Let us look to the Lord all of our days, and in doing so, let us find his mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the God who is abounding in love, steadfast love and compassion, the God full of mercy and of grace. And so we ask that we would live as your people, live as people who have known that mercy, who have known that grace. Father, turn our eyes from this world and let us fix them upon you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said together, Amen. Amen.